Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 31. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we are talking about reclaiming Indigenous histories and the Indigenous Paleolithic. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of Nuch or Ute Treaty lands, as well as part of the Dineta and the Ancestral Puebloan homeland. So today we have Dr. Paulette Steves on the podcast. Dr. Paulette Steves is an indigenous paleoarchaeologist currently working as an assistant professor in history and philosophy at Algoma University, where she is also a nominee for a Canada Research Chair Tier 2 in Healing and Reconciliation. She also serves as adjunct faculty at Mount Allison University. She has additionally previously taught at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, Fort Peck Community College, Selkirk College, and the State University of New York at Binghamton. She received her MA and PhD in anthropology from SUNY Binghamton, where she also received a certificate in evolutionary studies. Her research is framed in indigenous method and theory and is focused on reclaiming and rewriting the Pleistocene histories of indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Steves. Tansy, thank you for having me. So let's get started. I always ask at the beginning about how people got into this field. And you have kind of a, a non-traditional story of how you got into this field. Do you want to let our listeners know about how that went for you? Well, I moved to the USA from Canada. I think it was in 1995 as a way to find an area where my son had really bad asthma and allergies, where he could live better. And we ended up in the Ozarks. And after working for a year, I applied to go to school because I'd always wanted to go to college, even though I was older. I didn't have the opportunity when I was younger because of my uh, background and the schools I went to. And we weren't encouraged as First Nation students to even think about college. So I did apply. Um, I just wrote my grade 12 and got my GED and applied. And after my first year, had a full ride and got into the honors program. And um, I was actually doing pre-med thinking of becoming uh, a doctor. And one of the tribes from Oklahoma had asked me if I could help them to reclaim their ancestors' remains from museums in some way. And they were talking about possibly using genetics. So I got a grant as an undergrad honor student and worked with the community from Oklahoma. And we typed their mitochondrial DNA from their elders. And so we didn't have a lab at 
the University of Arkansas, but a really great lab at UC Davis did the work, the genetic work for us. And just the pressure of doing that first piece of the research was enough to move the museums and universities to re return the ancestors. So I really think the uh, museums and universities that held the community's ancestors knew that they belonged to them. They came from their home territories, but they were using loopholes in NAGPRA to not return the remains. And it was very important uh, to the community to reinter their, their ancestors. So we did the first piece of the research and were able to get the uh, mitochondrial DNA from tribal elders. The second piece would have been to see if we could match it to the ancestors who were being held by the museums. But like I say, the museums and universities pretty much knew that they belonged to that community. And so before we even did the second piece of the research, the community got 500 of their ancestors back and reburied wow. them. So that I really had to think about that. That was a very, um, it was a very powerful moment uh, for me to realize that we could use um, archaeology and anthropology and science to support work that communities wanted to have done. So that was an amazing moment. So I really started thinking after that about whether I wanted to continue on to med school or to be an archaeologist. And so what ultimately, was that what, what finalized that decision for you to switch I, I thought about it for a while, but uh, back in 1988, I became a newly divorced single mom with three children, and I was living in my little home community in British Columbia, and I went to talk to a, a Salish elder there, Leonard Sampson, and he said, yes, this, this is a hard time for you, but he told me, he said, the other elders and I have watched you grow up, and we feel really strongly that you have a job to do that's going to really help Indian people. He said, not just us, but all Indian people all over. And I'm, I'm a single parent and I have a great education. What am I going to do? He said, you know, you're going to do a lot, but it's going to be a lot harder than this. Well, at the time, I really couldn't imagine anything being harder, but I never forgot what he said. And it took me until I was almost finished graduate school to realize, oh, that's what he meant. I just have to rewrite world history. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just have to rewrite all of archaeology. No big deal. <laughs> yeah, for the Americas, for North and South America. But I never forgot what he said. All those years I kept thinking about it. And we're, we're taught growing up not to listen to the voices. I mean, Genocide was so thorough, it changed, tried to change our cultural ways so much that, you know, if we talked about spirits or listening to ancestors, we were crazy. Well, you can't right. let them right. all go and learn to listen. You need to reclaim those ceremonies and those indigenous ways of knowing, being, and doing. And for me, across time, I had to do that. I had to reclaim those ways and learn to listen. And uh, as an undergrad, to have a community come to you and ask you to do genetic work and then to get the funding and then be successful and then see their ancestors come home, that's not just me or the community, that's creator, that's ancestors, that's listening, um, you know, that the community was listening, that nobody wants to do genetic work, but they 
were listening and they thought, well, maybe this is how we push the button and we get our ancestors returned. And they were right. So just just learning, yeah. learning to listen and to trust those thoughts, those dreams, those messages that come to you is really important. Yeah, they put a lot of trust in you. That's for sure. Especially, you know, I mean, like you said, an undergrad. Yeah. How did how did you guys even get connected? I met with their NAGPRA representative at a meeting. So a parks official was coming and he was presenting his data on a park that was in their homeland and he wanted to dig up more remains. And I asked mm. him and he got real snitty with me. So this lady came to talk to me after the meeting and introduced herself. I was about the only First Nations Native American student in the whole department. And they were looking for somebody in archaeology or in science to work with. And being that I that I have indigenous roots and we were brought together, that's just how we were brought together. And that parks official from Arkansas um, saw us talking later and assumed that we mm-hmm. had set him up to ask these questions. <gasps> he actually <laughs> published in a government journal an article calling me a ventriloquist toady and a dummy and insulting her. So of course I address that because you don't, you don't need to put those things in a public published journal and uh, Uh wrong. Like I hadn't even met her. So, wow. So that was another, not to mention that's a very reasonable question. Like why, why do you need to do this? (laughs) <laughs> right, you have you have hundreds of remains, hundreds of thousands of remains already in museums and storages. Why do you want to, you know, disturb? Mm-hmm. And he was really upset that uh, that I dared to ask that question. Right, so that's yeah. how that's how I met the NAGPRA representative from that community, and then they ended up uh, hiring me as their NAGPRA intern. So I actually learned quite a bit from that uh, from that position and working with that community. And then so did you continue on doing this type of work or or how did how did it go from there? After I graduated, I moved to Miami, Florida, because there was a really good high school there that was for gifted students. And I wanted both my students to go. So I did end up working, living in Miami, Florida and working in a medical school for three years in ortho rehab. So I did all of the surgeries to remove bone and tissue and tendon from deceased donors and prepare it for surgery. And I did that because my older son was in the hospital a lot uh, when he was young. Mm -hmm. And I saw a lot of very sick children and I saw a lot of children that had bone cancer. And in Canada, they'll take off the diseased bone and they'll, we knew a little girl who they used her foot and sewed it backwards on her knee so she would have a joint. But if you hmm. have donor material, donor human bone, the children don't have to lose their limbs. You just replace the piece of bone. And so mm. I went to Miami and we didn't have much money. And I, I think I was waitressing and I, two women came into this lounge I was waitressing in and, uh, and they ordered straight up double tankery gins. And I was like, oh, my God. Right. They're really <laughs> these are some strong ladies. And they started talking to me and I, they said, oh, you're new. And I said, yeah, I just graduated. Well, what with? And I told them and oh, we got a job for you. Well, I'd been trying to get 
job at the med school and you can't even get in the door there. Mm -hmm. But I met them and see, this is how creator and ancestors work. I met them in this kind of little dive bar by the river uh, that they dropped into. And the next day I had a job in ortho rehab and I ended up running a, a cell growth lab there and getting a lot of really good experience and working in ortho rehab for three years. And uh, when my kids graduated, that's when I um, left Miami and I went into archaeological field work. So had all your kids left by then? I mean, the it was just the two that... My mm. oldest son passed away in 1999. Um, he wasn't supposed to live to even be six because his asthma and allergies were that bad, but he made it to 21. And... Uh, wow. That was in Arkansas. And so mm -hmm. her two children went to, it's called DASH, Design and Architecture Senior High in Miami, Florida. An awesome school, mm -hmm. an awesome principal. It was just a wonderful experience for them. And they went off to college, uh, which they didn't stay in, but I'm not a pushy mother, so <laughs> <laughs> they're both gifted in their own ways. And then, yeah, so when they went off to college, that's when I... um when I went off to start archaeological field work, and I did that for five years all over the United States and a little bit in Canada. So what was what was that experience like, shifting then into, into CRM work? It was really fun. So my previous job at the University of Miami, I was inside all the time. And when you have a donor, you're, you're wrapped up in gowns and surgery and and very sterile operating rooms under great stress for like minimally eight hours for each donor and then you wow. with the autopsy so after three years and about 300 autopsy assists and and recoveries it was really 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 nice just to be back out in nature to be out in the trees and the forest and hiking and um yeah, i learned learned with some really good really good people. And I did a couple of archaeological surveys uh, in the south in some swamps and mucky areas. And then I got on this amazing um, excavation right in uh, Cherokee, North Carolina. It was a huge, huge, one of the biggest excavations they've ever had. And it was um, being carried out uh, by a CRM firm, but with the Park Service and with the Cherokee tribe, the tribe had traded lands with the Park Service to build a new school. So this was a full mitigation of an area. And so two years later, of course, the CRM firm said, oh, there's not much here. Uh, we'll be done in six months. And I left two years later, there was <laughs> over 107 prehistoric houses and everything from the recent times back to 12,000 years. It was just the most incredible, amazing um, experience for an archaeologist. And then I did another uh, three years all over everywhere from, I don't know, New York and New Brunswick to California and a lot of places in between and some surveys like I think it was 167 miles from Texas over to Mississippi surveying the whole way. So it was really, wow. uh, it was a great experience and it showed me that our people covered the land just covered the land. Every single mile of that long survey had between three and nine sites. But it also showed me how disrespectful 
many field archaeologists are and how uninformed they are. So they've never, ever had a class in First Nations or Native American history. And they're out Mm -hmm. there just doing surveys and quite often destroying sites or being willing to watch sites be destroyed. Some do, do do really good work. But CRM is for a for-profit business, mm-hmm. you know, and for a lot of uh, young archaeologists, it's a party. It's a big party. Let's go on a hike and, you know, find some sites and then let's party. And uh, when I started running crews, none of the party years were on my crew because we'd leave at four or five in the morning and get done before it got to be 110 at one o'clock in the afternoon. But um, mm-hmm. I did see a lot of amazing uh Amazing sites. It was an amazing experience to do that. I think though I was actually fired off my last three or four jobs in uh, Utah uh, because I refused to sign off on sites being destroyed for oil pad roads. I refused to lie about sites being present. Um, I just uh, didn't go along with a lot of what other archaeologists went along with. Yeah, that's really disappointing, especially since that's right in my neck of the woods, obviously. Yeah. All right. Well, we're actually already at our first break point, but then we will get back and jump right back into all of this. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code HEVO, H-E-V-O. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. And we are back. So we were just talking about your work in CRM and how CRM companies... We're, we're doing some unethical work and asking you to, to be part of that. And it was interesting reading um, one of your articles that you sent me where you were talking, let's see, it's Academia, Archaeology, CRM, and Tippos is the article. And you were talking about CRM and the unethical practices. And it was kind of, it was interesting. It definitely made me think about the fact that Basically, like you were just saying that, I mean, CRM obviously is a, it's a money-making enterprise. And because of that, it does seem like there's a lot of practices in archaeology that kind of make it to CRM last, I guess you would say, like, like working with tribes. But I guess I'd never really thought about it that way, that CRM does seem to be kind of behind, you know, academia or behind the nonprofit world or you know, federal agencies even in, in working with tribes. So that was, that was kind of an interesting perspective that you mentioned that I hadn't really thought of exactly in that way. 
Yeah, well, there's there's nobody out there policing it. Mm-hmm. We pulled up to a site one time with I pulled up with a friend who's Native American, and when we got out. You could hear the archaeologists hollering, "Oh, the Indians are here! Hide everything!" Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and you got to remember, you know, prior to Nagpra in 1990, they didn't talk to any Native American tribes. They were against mm-hmm. the Indians, are including them. Nagpra ordered them to consult. And so they only consult on federal or tribal lands. They don't consult on a lot of other projects and they don't want to. Mm -hmm. Um, It's Mm -hmm. just been a practice. And it's, I mean, in some areas that's changing. It's changing a bit in, I think, more in Canada than in the United States. Mm -hmm. But it's a change. Right. It needs to become a lot more ethical. Mm -hmm. Well, and I mean, I think that's part of, probably why I hadn't quite thought about it that way is that again I do live and most of my work is in the southwest the U.S. southwest and it is I mean from my understanding at least a lot more common in CRM here than anywhere else in the U.S. where you know it's not unusual for CRM firms to work directly with tribes and I don't think that's the case in other regions of the U.S. And I mean, it's certainly not like certainly not like everybody in the Southwest does it, but it's it's something that is not uncommon. Yeah, there are pockets like the Southwest anywhere Mm -hmm. that where you have a lot of uh, Native American or First Nations communities and they push the ball. But it's unfortunate there's a lot of places even close to you, like Utah, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. never consult with tribes. and. They just, uh, it's not even a question that comes to their mind. They just don't because nobody ever has. And it would just be another um, thing that would take away from their, because it revenue. Go have meetings <laughs> yeah. and do things. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because it does, you know, it takes a lot of work to do it right. It takes a lot of work and it, you know, that's time and time is money. And yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how to put that incentive there for CRM firms to make that change? Well, NAGPRA ordered them to make that change. But like I say, that's only in specific smaller areas of the USA. Right. And I'm glad that's in place. In other areas, mm-hmm. communities have leveraged uh, their voices and their concerns. Um, like the project I worked on in the Northeast here, the firms that want drilling to build the big wind towers out in the continental were pressured that tribes may not agree with everything they want to do unless they first had an understanding of the Pleistocene and the early history of that area when the continental shelf was dry land. And Mm. so I received a grant from one of the uh, firms that wanted to work with the communities. And so they, if they wanted to do that work, they were kind of pushed or forced to meet those communities up there and to do this piece of work on those communities' early histories. And what it showed was that, God, at 13,000 years, people covered the land and the continental shelf was dry land. It was a very diverse, rich uh, place for people. So anywhere now underwater in the continental shelf could possibly hold cultural resources. So mm-hmm. 
need to have a monitor on any ship, any drilling rig, anytime they're moving dirt out there to put in these big uh, wind towers. Yeah. So can you give a little bit more background on, on what that project was? It's a, it's a pretty interesting one. Well, it's constantly been denied that people were here um, during or prior to prior to the last glacial maximum. Uh, but the communities there have oral traditions and stories that link them to the land. And there's a reservation out on Martha's Vineyard. The communities are very much still attached to their lands there. So they're able to leverage their voices. They get together as a group because they're very concerned about their early sites. So they asked me to um, put together a research project to, to be able to show their history on the land there. And I think I got up to over 200 sites dated between 10,000 and 12,000 years just in the Northeast and hundreds and hundreds of loose point finds. The land was just covered. There was also um, a shrimp a shrimp trawler dredged up a mastodon skull with a beautiful <laughs> laurel leaf point at the very edge of the lakes. And that mastodon skull dated 23,000 years. Well, we know that that was dry land. So sure, there could have been people out there. But because there's such a denial that people were here much earlier than 12,000, um, the, the communities, the tribal communities, really wanted to see uh, what there was evidence of people there during these frames. So I think I hired eight undergrad students and we did a huge research project and we mapped all these sites and pulled the big report together and showed that the land there was covered with people at 13,000 years ago. So, mm-hmm. you know, for them, for protecting early cultural sites, it's very important to have and to know that and to make make those companies that are going to be doing earth disturbing uh, pay attention. Yeah, so is that the project that got you starting to, to look at this kind of work or, or was there something before that that you got that got you interested in in looking at uh, place to see indigenous histories? I started looking in early grad school. So I had gone to grad school actually in the STEM field in genetics, realizing the power of genetics in um, in helping the community I did in, in uh, Arkansas and Oklahoma. But um, I found out the genetics lab wasn't quite, quite um, as ethical as I'd hoped. They, I mean, they had a long ways to go to catch up to required ethics standards. So I switched programs to archaeology and I started thinking about, well, I'd heard about these couple of early sites. I just knew of a few. So I just emailed someone, cold called them kind of out of the blue at um, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. I emailed Steve Holin because I heard he'd worked on a site. And I said, how many sites are there? How many do you know about? And he said, well, I'll give you a list of 10, but don't tell anyone what you're working on because they're just going to think you're crazy. <laughs> Well, if you're going to do this for your dissertation, it'd be pretty hard not to tell anybody. Mm-hmm. I started looking into it um, because there were a lot of things in deep time that really interested me besides archaeology sites. And I had my son helping me at the time doing literature research. And in two weeks, we found over 200 sites. 
And a month later, we knew of over 500 sites. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. how do you have this many sites between 12,000 and 200,000 years if people didn't get here till 12,000 years ago? Mm -hmm. If you took the youngest group of those sites, say between 12 and 13,000 years, and you map them out and they cover pretty much um, all of North and South America and a lot of areas, People had to be here sometime before. So that just brought more questions. And I just really, uh, really delved into it after that. And like I say, doors open. Um, Creator has a way of telling us what we're supposed to do. So I think it was my second year of grad school. And I actually got an award from the SAA, um, a $5,000 award, Native American award for field research. And then Steve Holland from the Denver Museum got a hold of me and said, hey, we're going to do some survey and work on some of these early Pleistocene sites this summer. And we have a $5,000 grant. And so there was my field research paid for. So I went and I worked with him for two years and I worked on sites like the Lacina site, which is over 18,000 years old, um, and a number of sites in Kansas and the Great Plains and of course, was then able to study a lot of materials at the Denver Museum. I learned about the Soretti site. Steve had mentioned it one day and I was able to somehow, I forget who gave it to me, I got a copy of the original report, the California DOT report on this site near San Diego that had a mastodon with suspected human activity. And no one had dated it at that time, but from the soils, it was looking to be over 100,000 years old. So um, Steve Holland and another group sat on those, those artifacts, kept them at the museum in San Diego until the dating technologies got to a place they could not be questioned. And they dated it. And in 2017, it was published in Nature, and it's a 130,000-year-old site. Hmm was one of the sites I ended up including in my dissertation study. So getting that site published is a really big, uh, a really big accomplishment for Steve Holland and for, I think it's Richard Soretti and others from the Museum of Man in San Diego. And then it was the Discover Magazine 2017 second best story of the year, science Hmm. year. So people are accepting now this work and this site. Of course, a lot of archaeologists jumped on it and critiqued it and bashed them. And, you know, it gets real ugly. People just aren't aware of all of the evidence from all the archaeological sites and from oral traditions and and the evidence of early human Asia and mammal migrations across the Bering Land area across millions of years. You know, mammals that arose in the ended up in Asia, like horses, the first primates, proto-primates, saber-toothed cats, camels. Those mammals all arose in the Americas. They can't fly, so they have to walk. They need food where they're going. So there was an open core. There's been some wonderful paleo-environmental studies and maps done that show that all North America and Asia was a subtropical forest or a vast savanna for for hundreds of thousands of years when humans, early humans, were living in Asia. 
So if you have early humans living in Asia and you got mammals coming both ways back and forth between Asia and the Western Hemisphere, the Americas, why why didn't humans mm-hmm, mm-hmm. see that, you know, humans may have been here 100 to 200,000 years ago? Well, yeah, it's possible. But if you ask most archaeologists, oh, it's impossible, it's impossible. That's what they've taught people for decades. So right, right. it's unfortunate, but people are taught to trust the authority of expert voices in knowledge production. But due to colonial policies, I mean, anthropology and archaeology were born of colonial parentage, right? Right. And, right. Um, and archaeologists understand there's power in the past. And when you look at the early field, the late 1800s, the early 1900s, everybody worked for the nation state. So colonization was going full bore, lands were being stolen, people were being dehumanized. We couldn't possibly have a history because indigenous peoples were framed as being a part of nature, not humans that had culture, but a part of nature. That made it okay to kill them, steal their land, Mm -hmm commit genocide. Um, Anthropology was a big part of racism and racializing. They were a part of creating uh, what the Nazis used, the whole, Mm -hmm. you know, the whole program of, of annihilating people because they were undesirable. So anthropology and archaeology have had to change from those. They started changing in the fifties after uh, the second world war and looking more to physical anthropology as something to study disease and to study massacres rather than um, eugenics. So th- there's had to be a lot of changes. But if you look into early archaeology, you'll see that Alex Herlishka, who's been discussed as an avowed racist, worked for the Smithsonian. He was their first physical anthropologist. He argued that the Indians had only been in the Americas for 3,000 years. And um, he was very adamant. Nobody could change his mind. And it's, it's um, talk about making links. Jesse Figgins from the Denver Museum of Nature and Science in 1927 changed that. So he had been alerted to some very huge um, mammal bones with, with uh, beautiful points in um, New Mexico near the town of Clovis. And it mm-hmm. took two years of arguing with Herlishka and having others visit and he had to do more than one excavation and leave everything in place till people came and saw it but that's when the time frame for early peoples here was changed to around 10 to 12,000 years because points were found with an extinct bison that was known to have been extinct for 10 to 12,000 years while that time frame has been stuck there since the late 1920s so human history every, everywhere else in the world is changing. People are finding more sites, more evidence for evolution, but, you know, it never changes in the... Recently, people have argued that, okay, so it's a little older because um, we have the Monte Verde site in Chile that's dated to 12,500 years. People were definitely there, so they had to be here earlier than Clovis. So the beautiful Clovis tool is dated between around 10,800 to around 11,500 with a few outlier years. So that beautiful Clovis tool is what archaeology learned, uh, used to place people here at 
um, 10 to 12,000 years, basically. Um, unfortunately, um, nowhere in the world has there ever been a pan-hemispheric cultural group. But anthropology and archaeology created these stories about the first people of the Americas. First of all, they were Asians who came from Asia, and Asia didn't exist, neither did Asians 12,000 years ago. Um, they brought this beautiful tool with them because the indigenous people here didn't have the skills to create this, of course. Everything had to come from Europe or Asia. So they created this story of the Clovis people, and a lot of it was very dehumanizing of indigenous peoples of the Americas. There's a lot of problems um, with that Clovis first theory, the theory that those beautiful stone tools all came from somewhere else outside of the Americas. They spent probably millions of dollars in decades looking for those tools in Siberia and Asia and Europe, never found them because they, they were, they arose here. That technology was built here in the Americas. So recently archeologists have had to kind of give up that ghost and say, okay, they developed in, in the Southeast United States. And, um, I think they were shared with a lot of other groups of people. So the, the Clovis people have been discussed by anthropologists and archaeologists as the first people of the Americas. And anywhere you find Clovis tools, you have Clovis people. But what that creates is a giant pan-hemispheric group of people. That doesn't exist anywhere in the world. Culture is not more than one tool. What that does is erase the indigenous diversity of this continent. So the only place the Clovis people ever existed really was in the wildest imagination of the archaeological mind. But that <laughs> is so embedded as fact that um, the Library of Congress has a Dewey Decimal number in the cultural section for the Clovis people. So you go to the library, I went at UMass, you have the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Cherokee, and you have the Clovis people. <laughs> God. There's no well, such thing. There is no such thing. And what that does is erase immense cultural diversity. And if you're looking at diversity, look at languages. So you would expect to find the largest number of language families um, in the world, maybe where people had been the longest, because um, it's been argued that one language family might take 6,000 years, our new language might take 6,000 years to develop. So if you look around the world, I think there's roughly 380 language families. You would expect to find the most in Africa. So this is a real, a real mystery to scholars because um, I think Europe has three. I forget how many Africa has, but the Americas has more than, I think more than 50% or close to 50% of the languages world. There's over 180 language families in North and South America. And that's what we know of the 5% of people that survived contact. Right. So if you look further back in time, prior to contact, how many more language families and languages were there that we don't know about? So the diversity of languages here really um, shows the diversity of people and cultures. It was immense, absolutely immense, very rich 
and, and culturally diverse, but yet archaeologists for decades have called us Asians from Asia who became Clovis people. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's like Vine Deloria said, people don't challenge these things and look at how actually absurd these statements are. They're taught as fact, but they're not based on any scientific data at all. Well, we are already at our next stopping point, but I have about 50 bajillion questions for you when we get back. Okay. Yeah, okay. really good stuff. So we'll, we'll be right back. Hello, it's Jim Eagle. Please join us for the Bay Area American Indian Two-Spirit Society's 11th Annual Two-Spirit Powell in person or online this year at San Francisco Fort Mason Center on Saturday, February 12th, 2022. Gore dance at noon and grand entry begins at 1 p.m. There will be over 60 vendors selling all types of indigenous products and crafts. Powell dancers from all over the U.S. will be competing in contests all day long. We'll also be having several delicious fry bread taco vendors. For more information, go to Bates.org. That's B-A-A-I-T-S.org. COVID protocols will be in effect. See you there. We are back. Okay, so listening to everything you were just saying, I have a million questions. And I guess one thing that I want to ask about, I do know that we have a decent number of our listeners who are from the general public. And again, I am not an archaeologist by training. I'm an ethnographer by training. So my first question is, is more about how you date sites that are that old? I mean, are you literally just looking at like the stratigraphy of the ground, you know, like how deep it is, stuff like that? So that's my first question. And my second question is, you know, it was it was interesting. You were just saying about how some of the the parts of the Bering Strait theory are just so absurd, but they just get repeated. And I remember being in college and having a she's a biological anthropology professor and she was talking about the Bering Strait theory and how basically the idea is people weren't, you know, like they had to, to walk across cause there wasn't another way to get across. And yet there were people, you know, in Hawaii and all across the Pacific islands that obviously take a huge amount of, of skill and knowledge to get to. So the, the fact that they would have to, this idea that like people couldn't have gotten to the Americas until there was a way for them to walk across just doesn't really make any sense. But so why, why do you think this theory is so hard to challenge? Like even today, it's, it's people even recognize that it's a lot more complex than that, that it's all of these things, and yet it's it just seems so hard to get away from it. Well, colonization has, you know, and archaeologists and academics have created um, an acceptable social story of indigenous peoples of the Americas, right? We're, we're very recent and we're not from here. We're from Asia. When you challenge that, you really upset them when you start discussing history and putting indigenous people in the same time frames and early spaces as people from the rest of the world. And there's a, there's a really good word um, that kind of explains it, agentology. So agentology is defined as how knowledge has not come to be and how ignorance is produced through neglect, 
neglect, secrecy, suppression, destruction of documents, unquestioned tradition, and social political selectivity has power in the present. David Meltzer, I'll quote him, he said, archaeologists are acutely aware of the possible implications of the earlier peopling of the Americas, which reflects on contemporary issues of identity, ancestry, and ownership of the past and present. So there's a few reasons why it's really hard for people to accept um, a change in dates that, that Indigenous people have actually been here much earlier. Number one, it's been embedded as fact for decades and taught as fact, and people don't understand it's not based on data or fact. It's based on conjecture. So people are taught to trust a few well-placed archaeologists who deny the earlier peopling of the Americas. And then the general mass, the general mass of academics supports that in their silence, not critiquing it and not questioning it. You know, and, it, and it, it's problematic because if you look at, so one of my questions when I started looking at this research is, okay, so here's the Bering Strait theory. What is it based on? And there's been some amazing work done by, yeah, by settler scholars in environmental studies and geological studies showing that the whole story is not based on anything but conjecture. They've shown that the so-called um, ice-free corridor that ran on the east side of the Rockies was, was still covered in ice when people were here. And it wouldn't, the ice wouldn't have melted and food wouldn't have grown in time for people to have used that area for the initial peopling. None of the Clovis points found here have ever been found outside of here. And you don't come to a place and, and all of a sudden start making beautiful tools. The Clovis Point is an apex. It's the height of tool making. So people had to be here quite a while before making tools to get to that point. And then, as you mentioned about boats, yeah. So they found some sites now on Crete that date to over 100,000 years. Apparently, you could never get there without a boat. So there's a lot of places that people went that they actually use watercraft. And I don't think that early humans are given the credit they deserve for their skill and their intelligence. I mean, they've been traveling the world for millions of years. It's what they did. So why wouldn't they cross water and use boats? So people could have used boats to get here. But if you go back prior to the glacial maximum around 24,000 years ago, there was dry land. So people didn't even need a boat here prior to the glacier. And it's the same with a lot of a lot of areas of the world. People walked from Africa to Asia, and nobody's questioning that. People were in Australia at 80,000 years. Nobody's questioning that. But if you say that people were in the Americas now more than twelve or 15,000 years, you get academically destroyed. People strongly question that. That's political. That's not based on the archaeological record or the environmental record, or the, the paleontological record, that's based in racism and politics. And that's based in the beliefs of people who live on stolen lands, mm -hmm. where, mm -hmm. where the, many of the First Nations people are now minor, minorities still living in systems of apartheid who have gone through a genocide. Settler populations and academics have a lot to come to grasp with. 
and it's indigenous scholars that are out there learning and teaching and writing and doing research um, that are opening these really important discussions. I mean, it's a big difference that people have been here over 100,000 years as opposed to 12,000 years. It's a big difference politically, but it fits much better with what we know of the human history of migrations on a global scale. That That is kind of an interesting thing that you mentioned there um, about it being politics, because, for example, when I mentioned to people that I was going to have you on this podcast, I definitely got a response of like, oh, well, is that is that based in science? in the in the sense of like um you know like is she just is this person just like wanting wanting you know things to be like that or is this actually and and i feel like it's almost actually the opposite like people again it's like you find a date that's older than what people think quote unquote it should be and people are like oh it's probably a mistake and like you know what i mean like there's like the throwing yeah they're not good scientists well it's it's funny um (laughs) I think it was uh, Tom Delahaye, or no, it was one of the women archaeologists in California that said, you know, she'd done all this work, and as long as her sites were younger than 12,000 years, she was a wonderful archaeologist. But she found a site that was older. She wasn't even a scientist. So here, here's an example of how racism and and. And the power of story is embedded in archaeology. The greatest paleontologist in the world, Louis Leakey, right, found the early humans in Africa. This man knows archaeology sites. He knows paleontology. He came to California and worked on a site in Southern California called the Calico Site. And the minute he said that site was older than 200,000 years, he was a crazy old man, right? right. So anybody um, saying that sites are older than what's acceptable to the nation state, what's acceptable to uh, people who have been taught through colonial racist ideologies, anything that challenges those beliefs that keep us minimal and infantile in time are wrong. So it can't possibly be science. It is so embedded And if people would just look at that original story and how absurd it is and that there is no data, there is no real data to say that Clovis is the earliest tool. There are hundreds of sites that say there are older tools in older places. So when my book comes out, I guess people might have something to go on. I I guess not everybody wants to go do all this research on their own, Mm -hmm. but a lot of other people have been saying that that people have been here earlier. So there have been a lot a lot of white stellar archaeologists who have done these sites. I couldn't have done my work without their first doing work. But these guys were really academically destroyed for saying sites were older. That's not science. That's not academia. That's hate and that's racism. There's a real issue there that hasn't been discussed and it's an issue in archaeology, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm, so why mm-hmm. why would you go after, you know, your typical white settler archaeologist because he said a site was older than 12,000 years? Well, because you don't want people to be here earlier. The, the genetic reports that they've had out, they're not even correct. And so it's also agentology. It's not what they're telling you. It's what they're not telling you. And so mm-hmm. 
these stories out that, um, oh, well, there was the Anzic child and they did his DNA and, oh, everybody's related to the Anzic child and he was here 12 to 14,000 years ago, but all, you know, everybody's related to him. What they're not telling you is that's based on very little data. I, I recently asked one of the top geneticists from the Max Planck Lab um, because I want to make sure that I'm correct in my book still. And I said, you know, there was very little genetic data, very little genetic samples that this is all based on. Am, am I incorrect? Is it still very little? And he said, no, it's still less than one-tenth of one percent. So the whole genetic story that you see splashed around in articles about us all being related is based on one-tenth of one percent of the five percent of the 95%. And mm -hmm. we'll start doing more genetic work like they have in South America on different different um, communities. They're finding more genetic diversity. And so that's agentology. They're, they're framing a story to um, support their research and saying, oh, look, I have the answer. Um, and they were only here maybe 14,000 years. And they're not telling you they don't have 99% of the data. That would, that would represent all Indigenous peoples of the Americas. So part of it's really still an issue with academics who are uh, misinforming people through their research. Very few, although there have been a few that have stated, okay, this is based on a very small data set, and that's problematic. You bet it's problematic, but it's dehumanizing and erasing diversity of all the Indigenous people of the Americas. So it's how... It's how um, we're, we, we, we typically framed, a, there, was a, there was a book I had to teach from as an undergrad, I was a teaching assistant, and there was an archaeology book for first-year students. So this is how colonialist discourses remain a factor in the maintenance of discrimination, racism, and the reproduction of colonialism in the academy. So the book was called Patterns in Prehistory, humankind's first three million years. So here's a statement. They were defining what is an artifact. And the author stated, a beautifully shaped stone spear point from a 20,000-year-old campsite in France is an artifact. But so is an undistinguished stone flake. Some weary Indian threw out in a Mississippi cornfield a thousand years ago. Winky and Olzeski, 2007, mm -hmm. right? How did they know mm -hmm. the Indian was weary? Right, right. from a thousand years ago. Why would you do that? Why would you right. find something from France as very old and beautiful and something from America as undistinguished, weary, and just chucked out in a field? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. how this book is still out there being used in first-year archaeology classes. This is how students are taught to see our history. I mean, it's it. When I read it, I was just what? This is so <laughs> egregious. It was so egregious. I had to email a few, a few people like Joe Watkins and say, "Is this really egregious, or is something wrong with me?" And he goes, "No, mm -hmm. egregious." Mm -hmm. and, wow! Because at that time, I was just learning to like actually think critically enough to pick these things out. So that became a really good teaching point um, in the class that I was teaching at the time. 
Okay, so we're like almost at the end. We're real close. But I do want to ask you, especially since what you were just talking about, you mentioned a lot that you use indigenous methods and theories and you're working on decolonizing and indigenizing curriculum, CRM, the academy, etc. So what, what does that look like to you? Decolonizing and indigenizing the academy is something I learned the hard way that needed to be done. So being very honest, I mean, I did receive a full ride scholarship to grad school because I earned it. But when I got to grad school, there were a lot of issues. There was one Native American student there before me. They'd had an extremely hard time. And uh, the minute I opened my mouth, I was attacked. And so from my first few months in grad school, I had to um, ask the department chair to create a committee regarding posters that were allowed to be displayed in the wall. So there had been a huge fight because there had been an open burial poster, not just put on the wall in the hallway of the anthropology department at Binghamton, put on the wall directly out of, uh, outside the door of the Native American student's office where he had to see it when he came out. And so there was a big fight before I got there. So I was able to um, push for having a committee formed to discuss proper displays. And after many tears and fighting with um, other people on the committee, we created a document. And, you know, I told them, I said, look, I've only been here a few months and you're really making me wish already I'd chosen a different school. Well, I kind of woke them up. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we had no rights. Our voice had no rights. I would be sitting in a class and as with many um classes where you have to discuss a lot there's three or four students that read the papers and discuss and I was one of them and I had other students get so mad because I always had something to say because I always read the papers and because even if you didn't think I looked Native American or First Nation the minute I opened my mouth wow there's no hiding it and uh, I, I had students jump up out of their chairs and scream at me to shut my mouth and watch what I said <laughs> professors said nothing. I had professors shake their fist in my face and scream at me at the top of their lungs that I didn't dare search any sites in, you know, South America. Like I had so many people trying to push me out of grad school that it actually became a really fun game just to stay there and do better than everybody. So mm -hmm. I, in a way I was able to turn that game around. But it really taught me that we really need to help these people learn that we're just humans like everybody else. We've been through genocide. We, a lot of us still live in an apartheid-like system. We still face high discrimination. And the only way to change that, not the only way, but the best way, is through education. And to, to create that kind of education, we need to decolonize the academy. So I'm continually, every class, I ask my students at the end of the class, what did you know before this class regarding First Nations or Native American or Indigenous histories? What do you know now? Oh, you didn't learn much before this class? So I actually have them write a paper and tell me in any classes where they've been given um, an article or a book by an Indigenous scholar, seen an Indigenous film or, or anything Indigenous, a speaker, and very little is happening. So there's the odd 
settler uh, professor who's really trying to learn and trying to incorporate indigenous voices. But for the most part, people aren't. They're not picking up that, uh, that challenge. They're not willing to put the work in to relearn. I mean, the ones that are doing, I think a lot of them are doing a great job. But we have a long, long way to go. And the best way to decolonize um, an academy is just to be there. So we need more students um, that are willing to get their master's and PhDs. And it's amazing. Um, there's been this great burst in the last 10 years of uh, Indigenous PhDs and Indigenous um, articles and books. And that's just amazing. That just makes me so happy. But we really need to support ourselves. We re really need our peers to support us and to help us. Because I think Marie Batiste, she's a, a First Nations scholar here in Canada, and she said, there's less than 2% of us in the academy. You know, we're not going to change it. We need our peers to support us. We need to get as many publications out as we can and to do as much as we can to encourage other Indigenous students to keep going and to get their PhDs. Yeah, yeah, I think that that what she said there about um, only being 2% and needing allies, that's, that's really huge. And I, I think there are resources out there now, you know, like this podcast that I, I've heard some people have been sharing in classrooms. So I think the whole, I don't know, excuse is, is getting a little harder to, to use like, Oh, I don't know any indigenous authors. I don't know any, you know, like, indigenous yeah. archaeologists to have come talk to my class well if you don't have one that you know you can share this podcast yeah um, no that's this is this is super this is really great so i go to committee meetings and you know committees you know our department we're talking about changing curriculums and um healing and reconciliation and all the recommendations and they immediately resort to their english and european writers and theories and they're, they're just like, oh, well, I have one poem by Simon Ortiz. I'm like, great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, know, you need a lot more than one poem. But they're mm -hmm. so invested. They're so embedded, invested in their five, you know, education comes from five main countries in Europe. Mm -hmm. That leaves out a great part of the world. Aren't you at least wondering what the rest of the world thinks? But right. they're so trained, invested to think only in that small pool. And they don't want to do the work to change a lot of them. And then I, I have been asked, I've done classes, uh, I give a workshop at Selkirk on indigenizing curriculum. Two faculty came, right? So how many faculty want to come? And then my son said to me one day, they wanted me to do it here at Algoma, but my time is really getting pressed. I have a lot of research and writing to do. And he said, mom, they're adults with PhDs just like you. You know what, if they want to know, they can do the research themselves. Mm -hmm. Like you're right. They can go online anytime and in their field type in, you know, First Nations or Indigenous authored books in history, in math, in whatever, you know, and it's almost like they're afraid to and some are afraid to do it wrong. Well, heck, if you're going to do something, I don't mind talking to you, come and ask me. But I think, you know, faculty have to step up and do this themselves because they have PhDs. They are researchers. They know how to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but for a lot of people, you know, they're already super busy or they're doing this or, you know, they're doing that. And that would just be another thing to do. But we're all education has always changed across time. 
And so this is one more change, but there's reluctance because it's not a white change. It's a change where you're accepting a minority, a minority voice into the academy that hasn't traditionally been there. Well, I think we're already, we might already be over time. So could you explain real quick what the, because we mentioned in your intro that you're a nominee for a Canada Research Chair to tier chair tier two in healing and reconciliation. And for those of us in the US and other parts of the world may not know what that is. Um, so you explained it to me before we got on the air, but could you give everyone else a little bit of a intro into what that is? Right. So there are Canada research chairs, chair, sorry, tier two and tier one in a number of fields. It's a very prestigious position. It's a grant. So it's only granted to certain people whose research has been very well developed, whose research is innovative. I had one faculty tell me, once you get a Canada Research Chair, uh, you never ever apply for a job again because people just search you out. So people are, that get Canada Research Chairs are, are looked at as world es- experts in their field. It comes with a $600,000 grant across five years. It also comes with a class release, a course release. So instead of teaching five courses a year, I teach one per semester to a year, which gives me a lot of time to do uh, research and to train undergraduate and graduate students in research. For me, the extremely important thing would be for it to be accepted that because my, my you do a big application, it takes months, big grant application. And my entire grant application is based on the fact that um, a part of healing and reconciliation is recovering our history, recovering our humanity, recovering our identities across the Pleistocene and the Paleolithic, because I'm saying I have the data that shows we have been here over 100,000 years. So they won't announce it until the fall sometime. Um, There are a few First Nations uh, people here that have Canada research chairs, and that's really makes me happy to see that. A lot of them are in the STEM sciences, but a few are outside the STEM sciences. So it's it's a very prestigious position. It allows you to be uh, pretty much a full-time researcher and to teach just two classes a year. So it's a real benefit for anybody that's serious about uh, doing research and making world altering changes. Well, we'll all keep your, our fingers crossed for you on that one. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, before we close out, is there is there any final thoughts that you wanted to share with our listeners, or probably just our members at this point? But <laughs> um, um, any I, like final I, points? Yeah, I I really hope that people um, will be open minded. I hope they will learn because I know that not everybody is taught this and not everybody gets to go to um, to university. But a lot of the people that are ex- experts, they do do really good work. But racism in Americas has put this huge wall block on the history of the Americas. And that's embedded. And I want people to critically about that and to look at the history of the rest of the world because this doesn't that people would only be here very recently. Um, I think when my book comes out that people will have that 
whole package in one place. It's supposed to be out in the fall of uh, 2020. It'll be called um, the Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere, the University of Nebraska Press. Um, got a lot of data in it. I tell it through a story because that's a part of Indigenous method and theory. And I tried to write the book so that anybody, a lay person, could read it and understand it and, and get through the data and the steps, um, how I show that people have been here earlier. So I just, I want people to realize that a part of um, a growing in a better world is, is being open-minded and thinking critically because politics is changing, leadership is changing, education um, and it's changing from being extremely colonial to being less colonial. And, um, and there's a lot of good indigenous authors and scholars and researchers. So I want people to know, um, especially students, if you're not given a book or a paper in your class by an indigenous Native American or First Nations scholar, find one in that area and give it to your teacher. Yeah. Yeah. We don't talk a lot about what students can do, but... That's a good one. Students can be very <laughs> active and very, very positive. Yeah, they've been great changes. Yeah. Well, you'll have to let us know when the book comes out so we can share it with everyone. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing. And I hope everyone will check out the show notes and, and continue to read some more. Okay. Thank you for having me on the show. Miigwech. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.